Hi, welcome to the Whistleblower Newsroom. I'm Christina Borgeson. In recent months, entire states have been imprisoned without due process and with the clear threat to impose such lockdowns again, interstate travel has been severely restricted, privacy rights have been devastated, numerous business takings without compensation, and many regulations being implemented without statutory process requirements under the guise of a health emergency that is roughly as dangerous as a seasonal influenza. The plaintiffs in this case have all been injured in various capacities by these unconstitutional actions and without action by the court will be left without redress. More terrifying, without action by the court, the court will be setting future precedent that will allow states to withhold fundamental constitutional rights in violation of US Supreme Court precedent, circumventing the various levels of scrutiny applied to such rights and justify such actions under public health emergency orders without subjecting those orders to any real review. Just trust the bureaucrats they are the experts. What you just heard is the opening salvo of a complaint filed against the state of Ohio by two attorneys looking to set a precedent that they hope will unshackle the entire nation from what they describe in their complaint as mass house arrest without due process based on bogus science and no evidence of a pandemic. Thomas Renz and Robert Gargaz have created what could be the tip of the spear of a national movement to end what they describe in their complaint as draconian and unconstitutional measures to contain a non-existent pandemic. Right now, they have 5,000 plus followers in a statewide movement they created called Ohio Stands Up. The backgrounds of both of these lawyers suggest that they're cut out for the job. Mr. Renz was mentored by Nuremberg prosecutor and international lawyer, Henry T. King Jr. And Renz was the only American ever to serve as a clerk for a justice of the Supreme Court of India. He is a winner of the National Trailblazer Award for political action and has advocated for numerous state and national legislative and regulatory reforms. Robert Gargaz is currently running for prosecutor of Lorain County, Ohio. He has served as legal counsel for the Lorain Port Authority and is the recipient of the Martindale Hubble Notable Peer Review Award for high ethical standards and legal ability. Welcome, gentlemen. Thank you. So, Mr. Gargaz, I guess I'd like to start by asking you when and how you and Mr. Renz decided to file this complaint and start your movement. Well, we were working on a uh, uh, matter with another lawyer and, and uh, it had to do with compensation for these unjust uh, takings. And I got a call from Tom and said he'd like to come in and meet with me. And, and the other lawyer go over, you know, what was happening. And uh, he expressed to me a, you know, sincere interest in, in uh, especially with his background in, in medical science and, and some health administration experiences that, that frankly I lacked. So I said, absolutely. And, and so Tom got together and, and we met in my office and uh, talked over the phone a bit as well. But it, it came, uh, uh, to my mind, that this man is brilliant. He's a lot smarter than I am, and he knows and has experiences in areas uh, that are going to help us win this case. And, and uh, so we all three started working together. Uh, and uh, uh, one of our uh, colleagues had a bicycle accident and got hurt, and uh, chose you know to uh, work more on it, getting healthy and, and getting back together. So Tom and I then, then went forward with this. And uh, I have to tell you uh, that uh, Tom has children. I have grandchildren. And 
a lot of what we're doing here is not just for, for uh, you know, making the Constitution be obeyed, but to make sure that we have a country and a society that we both grew up in a, and were appreciative of. Uh, this kind of a, a despot a tyranny that, that is traveling across our country uh, would make our founding fathers roll in their graves. And, and it, it just takes uh, uh, two good men from Ohio to stand up and say, we're not gonna take it anymore. And basically, you know, praise God, you know, for, for my uh, counsel uh, and his abilities, my co-counsel, Mr. Renz, uh, because even though we both know the constitution, uh, I'm a bit verbose and he's very concise. And, uh, uh, than I am. and I, I gotta, I gotta tip my hat to Tom. He's done a tremendous and amazing job. And his background is, is what really is helping this to sprout. Uh, well, we're, I, we're still waiting for him to join, join us here. Oh, so, here. I, oh, there you are. There you are. Hey, welcome. Welcome. I'm sorry. I snuck in a little late. I got held up on an emergency call related to the case and, uh, you know, some of these people that are calling me are such, it's such an honor to hear from them. And, uh, who are you talking about? Well, I can't tell you, unfortunately, but it was, uh, it was someone who I was quite honored to be speaking with. So, okay. Well, let's, let's get into some of the details. Cause I'll tell you your complaint lit my head on the hair on fire. Okay. Let's, what are you saying is unconstitutional? First of all, let's talk about all the things you're talking about Governor DeWine's lockdown policies. Talk, talk to me about what is wrong with this. What, what is wrong with what he's doing? Well, the list might take me three days, but I'll give you the summary. Um, ultimately, we had a wonderful Supreme Court case that came out of the 30s during the Great Depression. And the Supreme Court said that an emergency declaration doesn't expand your constitutional powers. So the Constitution's the Constitution. You really shouldn't even need a case to know this. You know, ultimately, the Constitution and the Bill of Rights become even more important during an emergency because when times are bad, that's when it's easiest for de despotism and tyranny to take over. You know, holding true to our freedoms and to what we believe in and to who we are as a people, that, that becomes so much more important when things are bad. Well. You know, when we first had this disease came out, I'm gonna be honest with you, I didn't view it when it was coming into this country to be as big of a risk as they were uh, playing it to be. I started following this in January, but yeah, it is what it is. So they, they decided there's an emergency to deal with this curve that was gonna come. And they did all these steps. Well, here's the thing. So if you wanna declare an emergency and you wanna say that this is you know, a new thing, we're not sure what's gonna happen, and we got to take some immediate steps. I think it was questionable, but it was debatably reasonable. Um, well, you don't know what you're dealing with, so you want to err on the side of caution. And I can I can get behind that for a couple of weeks, I guess. I, as a constitutional guy, as a guy who is very, very much a believer in protecting liberty, I was pretty concerned about some of the actions that they were taking, but which ones? Which ones? Well, I'll be honest, under no circumstances ever in this country should anyone be able to issue a statewide house arrest. If you look at the lockdown orders, and particularly under the Ohio Revised Code, if you compare the Ohio Revised Code for house arrest and the lockdown order that we had, the shelter in place order, they're almost indistinguishable. I mean, the language is different, but the, the meaning is the same. And that is so far beyond the pale. There is never ever, ever a time in the United States where that's going to be acceptable, in my opinion. Uh, if you've got an area that needs lockdown, that's a big deal to me. And that's arguably too much. But to say an entire state, particularly when there's only three sick people in the whole state, needs to lock down and shelter in place, that's insane. So we threw our constitution right out the door. And ultimately what happened was, is we declared this emergency and then we said, hey, there's an emergency. So we're just gonna do whatever we want. There's no limitations and the constitution doesn't really matter. And that's kind of the foundation for our case. 
So well, now you you mentioned the two of you mentioned the devastation to Ohio in terms of you know well your your complaint goes chapter and verse into that. Um, let's let's talk about that. Let's talk about the numbers. Let's talk about what's happened to people. I, I read the complaints also, the affidavits of, of the people who signed on to, who are in your complaint. And really until you see all those details, you don't realize how huge this really is. I mean, Ohio has been devastated economically, right? Oh, a trillion dollars worth of loss has been estimated. A trillion dollars. A trillion? A trillion dollars. In Ohio? In Ohio, just in Ohio. And, how, and wait, how have they figured that? What kind of math? That's a trillion dollars is a big claim. What? Where does that come from? How is that figured out? Well, the loss of their tax revenues, for one thing. <laughs> you know, the state of Ohio has put themselves behind a pickle now with not being able to collect the revenues uh, from the various uh, manufacturing, uh, sales, uh, economic transfers. And, and along that line, you know, Ohio declared certain people to be essential and other people to be non-essential, kind of similar to what the governor of Pennsylvania decided, you know, in, in, in determining who's going to uh, be able to work, earn a living, and those who are going to have to sit home and do nothing and lose their savings and maybe lose their assets because they're unable to service their debt. So are, is that, does that trillion dollars also like um, take into consideration future losses? I mean, a trillion dollars seems like so much. Yeah, you're talking about the gross uh, domestic product for the state of Ohio uh -huh. been reduced by $1 trillion because of DeWine because of him acting as a tyrant. Governor DeWine. Shutting everybody down and saying you can't go to work and you have to be locked down. Yeah, that's the gross national product of, you know, just the state of Ohio's loss. Imagine, okay. imagine all the other states across the United States of America. And, and uh, I think it's been estimated that there's been like $6 trillion total damage to the United States economy. And this was uh, perhaps uh, two months ago or so that that estimate was done. And I think Mr. Trump is being pretty clear that we're going to set off, you know, the $4 trillion that, that we owed you, you created $6 trillion. So you can see it coming, you know, where, where the government is, is going to ask for reparations from China for the loss that's been demonstrated to the United States. So, okay, so we're talking about economics. We're talking about people whose businesses have collapsed. We're talking about people who don't get to the hospitals. We're talking about people who can't go to church and, and, and um, you know, worship. We're, we're talking about a whole rafter of, of normal activities and so on that have been completely, uh, are now completely controlled. And this, this insanity has gone so far as to a lady watching her son play football this week in Ohio got tasered because she didn't have a mask on. I don't know if you've seen that, but the public needs to see that. It's it's a, a, one of the most absolute abuses of authority that I've ever witnessed as an adult American. And I, I really question this was in Ohio. My goodness. You know, I you would have thought that we was in Communist Party China. Or, or the Soviet Union uh, during Stalin's days. It was just tragic to see a mother uh, and, and you know, even like, even the guy that was sitting there like kind of saying, oh, come on lady, you know, when they pulled out the taser and hit her with the taser, it was shocking. Even he had to get up and say, hey, what are you doing? What are you doing to this poor woman? And they, they you know, put her in, uh, you know, hands behind her back and walked her off the field. I mean, it was just tragic. And, and can you imagine everybody else in the stands are saying, Hey, what are you doing? This is a lady watching a game. You know, it could be in, in, in any town USA and she's been tasered because she's okay. not Well, let's, let's, okay. So your complaint obviously needs to have, be backed up by some evidence in terms of refuting the governor's uh, claims that this is a war, we should be very fearful about this, we have to take you know, act, actions, even draconian ones to protect everybody. So you guys have also taken a look at um, 
the science and, and what uh, health uh, leaders have said. So now before we start to talk about this, I would like to play a clip. When I saw this clip, I, I was shocked. It's a clip of Dr. Ngozi Azike from the Illinois Department of Public Health describing how COVID deaths, now it's very important, if you're gonna call it a pandemic, you've gotta have a huge number of deaths. So she talks about how the COVID deaths are determined and counted. And I would like the audience to listen very carefully to what this woman is saying. Clear in terms of the definition of people dying of COVID. So. The case definition is, is very simplistic. It means at the time of death, um, it, it was a COVID positive diagnosis. So that means that if you were in hospice and had already been given you know, a few weeks to live, and then you also were found to have COVID, that would be counted as a COVID death. It means that if, um, it technically, if even if you died of, a, clear alternate cause, but you had COVID at the same time, it's still listed as a COVID death. So um, everyone who's listed as a COVID death doesn't mean that that was the cause of the death, but they had COVID at the time of death. I hope that's helpful. So she's actually saying, even if you don't die of COVID, if you have it, you're considered a COVID death. Thank you. Thank I you mean, for saying that. I mean, it, it's just, it's absolutely, so that of course would account for, I would think massively inflated numbers. Is that correct? Wow, is that correct? So when I started into this, that was one of the first things that I dug into. You know, we're looking at this number that you know now is approaching 200,000 supposed COVID deaths. The Supreme Court of the United States was misled on this. Can you imagine the audacity for an attorney to go into the Supreme Court of the United States and misrepresent the evidence? Uh, know, when was, was this done? When was that done? Uh, South Bay Pentecostal v. California, one of the first religious freedom cases. In his ruling, Justice Roberts talks about coronavirus as being a deadly disease that's been responsible for over 100,000 deaths nationally. That's in May 30th. We haven't had 100,000 deaths from COVID to this point, we're nowhere near that. And you know, the fact of the matter is, is they've been lying from the beginning and saying that, it, not explaining to people the difference between dying with COVID and dying from COVID. It's an outright lie. And that's one of the central uh, pieces of our case from a fact basis. There's no question that they've lied about this. This is CDC data. And you know, I, it's funny because I actually had someone supposedly fact check me on this. Uh, I don't know who fact checked it, but apparently they're fact checkers. I believe it was Axios, but I'm not sure. But apparently they didn't dig too deep because if they dug too deep, they would have looked at the references in my case that cited CDC documents saying this and cited the clip that you just played and cited an additional clip from Dr. Burks herself. I mean, there's no question that this has been intentionally misleading. There's no question that that number is with, not from, you know, and, and to just, I want to reiterate it for anybody watching this, that, that number, that 200,000, if you get hit by a bus and you cough when you're dying and you live in an area of continuous ongoing transmission, that means you can be listed as a COVID death. So let's be real clear. And this can't be said enough. If you live in an area with continuous ongoing transmission of COVID-19, SARS-CoV-2, and you cough when you die, that meets the case definition for a probable case under the CDC's guidelines. And under CDC guidelines, if you got hit by a bus, but you died in that situation, you could be listed as a COVID death, legally, correctly, and properly. So so, okay, so now we know that the counting of the deaths has been inflated, but now let's talk about the, um, uh, the diagnosing of it. Let's talk about the testing for diagnosing somebody with COVID. 
That's also in your complaint. Could you talk about that a little bit? Oh, I can certainly talk about that. So our gold standard test, the PCR test, which everybody loves, that test was developed by an absolute genius who won a Nobel Prize for developing the test. The PCR test was developed back in the 90s, and the inventor of that test specifically said, this is a wonderful test for lab use, but should never be used to diagnose a disease because it's not appropriate for it. This is the, the test we're using. Now, there's a couple things to know. First of all, if you're diagnosed and you're lab tested and they say that you've got COVID-19, what that means is that means that whoever's performing that test and whatever tests they're using, under those standards, you're, you're uh, positive. But those but wait standards a second. change. Wait, wait, wait. You said under whatever tests they're using. Well, whatever is, a, is the loaded question because you can't just use whatever test to test for COVID. I mean, you have to use a, and why is it that they can't test for COVID? So there's over a hundred different manufacturers that are producing COVID tests. The manufacturers, not the CDC, not the FDA, the manufacturers set the, uh, the definition for a positive case. It is no standard definition for what it means to have coronavirus in the United States, SARS, uh, COVID-19. The CDC hasn't said it, it's based on the manufacturer and these tests only test for the presence of a virus. Now, I don't wanna drive people- Of a virus? A, well, a virus that is, it depends on the test. They have to be somehow related to this SARS-CoV-2 virus, but you don't, some of the tests, my understanding from my scientists, don't even need a complete piece of the virus. Uh, they don't, some of these tests, and we have uh, in our complaint language from one of the tests, they didn't, when they created this test, they didn't even have SARS-CoV-2 virus isolate to compare it to. So they created this hybrid and made this test without even having the virus to compare it to. And I do believe, unless someone's done something that I haven't been able to find, I don't believe that they've isolated the virus yet. Now that's not to say I don't believe there's a virus, I do. I'm not, not into conspiracies, but if you don't have it and the tests aren't being developed from it, and if there's no standard set by the CDC, what do these tests mean? And the answer is nothing. They mean nothing. That's why the governor of Ohio tested positive before he tested negative twice in two days. And doesn't, I mean, I, it's interesting that that happened to him and yet he didn't, uh, I'm talking again to Thomas Renz, uh, who along with Robert Gargas has um, submitted a complaint against the state of Ohio uh, for, among other things, massive house arrest of, without due process of uh, everybody in the state of Ohio because of COVID, which you're saying, and obviously, if we're looking at the testing, if we're looking at how COVID is, uh, a COVID death is described, <laughs> is, is, is called even when uh, people who don't die of COVID, they might have it or they might cough or whatever, then there's, you know, they're deemed to have died of COVID. So the, the whole thing is based on, on a lot of bogus science and, and bogus counting. I mean, that, that you've made clear in, in your complaint. I'm just wondering how DeWine uh, squares what happened to him with his testing and his, and it's very interesting how he seemed to base his whole lockdown policy he seemed to um, model it after the post 9-11 war on terrorism measuring. He had the, the uh, color-coded uh, the color-coded uh, high level, low level, all, all areas are, are color-coded for how strongly the uh, virus is present in those areas. And I looked at that and I thought, and then the whole, all his, I have these quotes that I pulled that I thought were like, he and Amy Acton, uh, Ohio uh, health director, I mean, when he talks about, we are in a crisis, a very serious crisis. I hope we, it's a crisis that we have not seen in the state for 102 years. I hope we don't see it for another 102 years. You know, he calls it a war. 
uh, you know, but we're fighting back and this is something we can do with masks and social distancing, et cetera. So what, what do you, how do you think you're gonna win this battle? Well, ultimately one of the beautiful things about our country is that a, a couple guys from Ohio, like Bob and I, you know, no one special, just regular guys. We got our little law firms are doing our little thing. We actually have the ability to say in our nation, hey, I don't think you're following the laws. And that's what we're doing. We're going to the courts. Now, the data, the information, the, the stuff that we have, yeah, all of it's based on CDC, ODH, or you know, peer-reviewed stuff. I mean, we were very, very careful in the complaint to make sure that everything was cited and documented. And in any case possible, we use their data because their data is gonna be the worst case scenario for our case. And we felt that if we could make the case using their data, then our case must be strong. And we did, we did make that case. And I do believe it is strong. You know, the wonderful thing is that we are now getting ready. And in the next couple of weeks, we should be beginning discovery. Now, we have elected officials in the state of Ohio, people sitting in the House of uh, the State House of Representatives that have requested information from the governor and from the ODH, and they have been denied and ignored and blown off. How can we they have, be legally denied? Well, they can't, but the, you got to understand, we don't care about the laws at the moment. We're just doing whatever we want to do. Um, I keep getting people calling me. They're doing this to my kid. They're doing this to my mom. They're doing this to my family. How are they doing that? Isn't that illegal? Yeah, it's illegal, but they don't care. They're still doing it. That's why we go to the courts. That's why we're going to the courts because right now the rule of law doesn't mean a lot in Ohio or a lot of other states for that matter. I believe you're out in New York or at least broadcasting out Jersey, of there. I think, Jersey. Yeah. I, I think you guys can relate. Um, I had some great calls from there yesterday. So as we move into this next stage, the big thing that's going to happen is this discovery, right? So discovery is where we get to ask people questions under oath, and we get to see the data. Now, the one thing that I said, and I'll keep saying this on interviews, we're going to look at the data, assuming they don't try and hide it, and assuming that we can actually get the data. If I'm wrong about all this, if it turns out that the data says, oh my God, we're all going to die, then I'm gonna publicly apologize, go away, and no one's gonna ever hear from me again. But I don't think that's gonna happen because you don't hide data from elected officials, from Freedom of Information Act requests, from open records disclosures. You don't hide that unless there's a reason. So we'll take a look at the data. I would also be on the lookout uh, for data that has been tampered with. Oh, we're gonna be, we're gonna be. We have, uh, it's our hope, listen, we're just, like I said, we're just regular guys. You know, Bob and I, we're just, we kind of laugh about the fact that you got these two guys who are, you know, just regular well, people. Well, you're not so oh. regular anymore. <laughs> uh, no, we still are. Uh, people just haven't got the memo yet. But I, let us put a warning out there to anybody that tampers with the evidence. You're going to have two regular Joes from Ohio seeking to have you punished, imprisoned, and otherwise uh, removed of your wealth for that yeah. kind of behavior. Yeah, we'll, we'll sue people personally if they do that. If we can prove it, if we can demonstrate it, we're going after them personally for that because that's a, that's a crime. And you know, ultimately it is critical that we protect the integrity of our legal system. And if you start tampering with evidence in a uh, case, that's, that's just so far beyond the pale. But we're gonna do everything we can to ensure that you know, we get to the real evidence. Luckily, because of all the, the citizen journalists and all the people around the country that have been smart enough to watch this from the beginning, uh, a lot of people have saved a lot of data and we've got an awful lot of data. And if that data doesn't mesh with what they give us, we're gonna be asking why it doesn't mesh with what they've given us because that data is, it's out there. Now we want it clean and from them so that we can introduce it in court without question, without having to jump through legal hoops to get it into court. And if they're doing this in good faith, they should have no problem with that because there's no reason to hide something unless you've got something to hide. So they should be giving us clean, untampered data. We should be able to analyze it and we should be able to go and get justice in the court. 
I'm a strong believer that our courts actually, I know they get it wrong sometime and a lot of people, you know, like to jump on the courts, but I believe that our courts generally try their best to get to justice. And I think that they usually do a pretty good job on it. And, you know, that's what we're seeking here because to my mind, as long as we get to truth and justice, there's no question how this case comes out. Uh, it's, it's a very straightforward thing. Well, now, are you saying that you have good faith in uh, the Ohio judicial system? You do not think that, I mean, this is my reptilian mind, you know, speaking because, you know, this is the whistleblower newsroom and reptilian things happen to whistleblowers. <laughs> Trust me, you know, I could write the encyclopedia on that. Um, you don't think there's not going to be any um, pressure on the judge or the Ohio judicial system, any part of it that is dealing with your submission? Oh, well, I certainly think there's going to be pressure everywhere. I think there's no question about that. But I also think that the data is pretty clear, going to be pretty clear. I think that the situation is going to be pretty clear. And ultimately, I think you also got to remember, anywhere we go, yeah, these judges are theoretically living under the same sort of tyranny we are. Uh, the people who are, I would like to think that the people who are opposing us in this case are living under the same sort of tyranny we are. Well, what about the law enforcement that's going out there and tasing people or, you know? Well, I, I, I got to be honest. What do you say to that? What do you say to these people? Well, I got to. Yeah, one thing I just want to add in too is that our case is in the federal court. So the Ohio uh, jurisprudence isn't as much as important as the people who are representing Ohio. The Ohio Attorney General and the governor's private lawyers who are all coming in, uh, they are the public servants who took an oath to obey and uphold the Constitution of the United States. And from, from what I've been able to see is they're, they're not following their oath when they issue these tyrannical orders violating the Ninth Amendment preventing us from breathing naturally as God gave us the right to do so. Um, when, when you look at, at the federal court uh, in Toledo, you know, Western Division of Ohio, it's basically gonna take from Cleveland all the way to Indiana and down to Columbus, uh, including like Allen County. So, so all of that quadrant of Ohio, if you will, uh, will be free when we win this case. And, and I, I agree with Tom, you know, that, uh, uh, I would hope that uh, lawyers who took the oath, you know, to, to practice law understand that the apex law in, a, in the United States of America is our Constitution. And at least we're in the federal forum where the federal Constitution will be interpreted. And to help us believe that justice will be coming, we have to look at uh, what Judge Stickman did in, in the Western District of Pennsylvania out of Pittsburgh. I mean, where he declared the, the state's scenarios unconstitutional. And so we, I, when I read that opinion, and Tom, I'm, I'm sure you did too, we got a great deal of uh, satisfaction because it almost validated what we, and almost, it does validate what we are arguing uh, to the federal court and, and to the people and to the public. And, and so all your listeners really should take heart because we're not going down, this is not going to be allowed to go down without tremendous constitutional arguments uh, being presented uh, to, to the federal court. Who's gonna be held personally accountable and how if you are successful? Well, right now- How far up the food chain does the accountability go and how low does it go? Well, it's hard to say yet. We'll see what happens with discovery. You know, I mean, we may well amend the complaint after discovery. Yeah, right now we need to see what, what we can see in uh, what's happened. And once we have the evidence, we'll see where the evidence points us. You know, um, certainly my goal would be to make as much of the discovery as publicly available as possible immediately or sooner. The people need to know what's going on. And I think as that happens, I think you may not only see accountability in the courts, but you may also see political accountability because I do believe when people find out that they've been misled for over six months, and that in doing so, they've destroyed the US economy. They've damaged people's lives. The suicide rates are up. The poverty rates have been terrible. Abuse, drugs, all these problems, all because of this absurd, absurdity. Um, 
Yeah, I got to believe there's going to be some political heads rolling. So, you know, I, I think that there'll be more than just what we do in terms of that. And I don't yet know how far we're going to be able to go. We'll see. But uh, I look forward to going as far as we can go. Well, the reason why I ask you that is because um, it's one thing to lose your political career by not being, uh, you know, voted for again, because, but I mean, this whole situation has created massive economic loss and death. It's almost like a mass, you, I don't know, can you characterize it as a mass disaster? And if you can, and if you're saying that this is a politically motivated mass disaster, or you know, if you if you if you put in any context this as a mass disaster that was engineered or orchestrated, and I'm wondering if if you feel that is the case, first of all, then people have to be held personally accountable, not just politically accountable. Well. So the wonderful thing about my position, and you know, it's, it's amazing how much stuff we're hearing, the tips that we're getting on this and that and the other, and some of it's incredible, and some of it's probably far more accurate than anyone would ever like to know. Like what? Ah, uh, see, here's the, the thing. I don't have to get into motive in my case because it's not criminal. My case is that this is unconstitutional. I want our rights back. Now, if the Justice Department would like information, I would welcome a call from them. I would welcome a conversation from with Attorney General Barr on some of what's happened, because I'm gonna tell you, it looks pretty bad to me. Thankfully, I don't have to try that case because I'm gonna tell you, um, if half of what I've heard in terms of motives and people working together is true, it's something that we should all be terrified about. But I don't have to prove that and I'm staying away from it and I'll tell you why. Uh, our constitution's been violated. There's no question. It was violated on, uh, based on a false premise. There's no question. I can show those. It's critical in this case that we do everything we can to remain above the fray in terms of our credibility. I, if I get into things that are maybes, well, then I lose some credibility there. My goal here is one thing, justice, justice for the American people. And justice in the capacity that I'm able to, to provide it for my clients, for the plaintiffs, and for, you know, they've asked, by the way, for us to, to fight for justice for the American people, is to get our constitutional rights back and to make that data available, to make that information available. From there, we hope that there will be political and other legal accountability, but I'm not a prosecutor. Bob might be soon, uh, but God willing, but I'm not a prosecutor. So the thing is, is I can't put these people in jail. What I can do is I can show what's happened. And then if someone like the AG's office feels that there's action to be taken, well, you know, we're happy to talk with them about what we found and I'm happy to support them. But right now it's super, super important in my mind. You know, we've, we're going to have every mainstream lying organization out there that you can imagine calling us granny killers. We've already had quite a few hit pieces. It is what it is. Um, because they don't read our complaint. They don't look at the citations. They don't care about the facts. We have to remain above the fray. And, and our credibility is critical. It's crucial. And that's something that we're going to do everything we can to maintain in every sense of the word. So luckily for me, I don't have to dig into or even worry about these motives yet, but I will tell you uh, some of what I've seen and I find to be very credible because I've heard from well-placed people in unbelievable positions. Uh, it's terrifying, it's terrifying. Well, I, I hope that you have documented all that for possibly divulging later on when uh, you can, because I'm of course dying of curiosity <laughs> to know what you've been, what you've been told, et cetera, but okay. Sorry. Uh, well, I, 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 you, I really don't want to, um, I'd be remiss if I could not get you to talk in detail about the press's role in, in this situation and your personal experience of that. Could you talk about that a little bit? So it's shameful. 
Um, there's been some great guys, uh, you, uh, John Rappaport, some of these people who are really, you're doing your job. You're actually truly legitimately investigative journalists. Um, then the other side of it is kind of the mainstream of press. They aren't looking. In fact, I don't believe they're not just not looking. I believe they're willfully blind, putting blind for, blinders on to what's happening. Uh, there is no reason. Everything in our complaint is cited. You read it. It's from the yep. CDC. You can't argue with it. There's no argument to be made unless the CDC was lying both times. So you can't argue with it. What I want to know is why is the mainstream press, why aren't they talking about this? You know, they've been suppressing it and we're, we're getting quite a bit of media for sure. But, you know, we've had a few hit, hit pieces from people. I found one, uh, one paper here in Ohio was interesting. Uh, they wrote two hit pieces on me and never, never interviewed me once, but they had a lot of quotes from me. Um, you could go right ahead and name them. Who are they? No, go, don't be shy because oh. they need, no, listen, let me tell you something. Let me tell you something. I have, I'm a whistleblower. I used to work for the mainstream. Okay. I worked for, you know, a lot, several networks and, um, you know, I got lost my job, for example, at CBS, I was let go because I asked the wrong questions uh, during an investigation of a crash. And it took me 17 years to put together a documentary uh, with whistleblowers from inside the original government investigation of this crash. These people came forward and said, yes, we were undermined. And yes, you know, we lied to the public, et cetera. I mean, it took me 17 years and destroyed my network career. And when, when that film came out, I may, and I'm telling you this because it's important, Journalists do not like to be singled out for their bad reporting or for, you know, for their official source reporting that they know may not be true, but they're not going to look into it because they need to maintain contact with that official source. Not number one. And number two, if you say the, this journalist from this paper wrote a hit piece on me, didn't even call. Trust me, that is going to discourage them from doing that kind of, you know, engaging in those shenanigans again. That's why I'm telling you this. Do mm -hmm. not be shy about calling out the people who are putting out what you know to be absolute untruths, and especially if they're putting words in your mouth. They need to be called out. No. Hey, Tom, can I call out the Chronicle Telegram of Valerio, Ohio? You know, the Chronicle Telegram of Elyria, Ohio, they might as well be writing for the Chinese Communist Party. I mean, every day they have nothing but negative Trump comments. They are so far left, okay, that most of the people in Lorain County, Ohio, that have any semblance left of fairness, understand that that, uh, that paper is filled with leftists, uh, you know, leaning uh, probably Marxist. But you know, the thing is this, it, it's, Again, you know, you talk about, um, I, I, it's better not to even, I feel like a journalist's political views should never be the point. If you're a proper journalist, you're looking for the truth. It doesn't matter what wing the truth flies in on, whether it's left or right or whatever. If it's true, it's true. Particularly when you're talking about these facts that we're discussing that, yeah, that are buttressing right. your, your complaint. Right. And like the Chinese Communist Party, you know, the scientists just disclosed nationally that it was something that was created by the Chinese Communist Party and intentionally released upon America. This, this uh, Chronicle Telegram uh, says, oh, that's just a, that, that's not true, that was debunked. I mean, that's just craziness. And they put it in their editorials and, and spew it out to all the people in Lorain County. But the one act, the one act that I think that that is worth investigative journalists really looking at is the Robert T. Stafford Disaster Relief and Emergency Assistance Act. That's 42 U.S.C. 5170. Okay, and basically, when that act is out there, the government's giving away money. I'm just going to paraphrase it. The government's giving away money uh, to states and and to areas that that need disaster relief. And I suggest that. A lot of what has been done by Governor DeWine and under his orders and control, 
violates that, okay? Because if it's a fake pandemic, okay, if it's contrived as we believe and fraudulent that we believe it can be shown, okay, then there's criminal violations here. And that's what I think we wanna really have Mr. Barr take a look at because a lot of these people throughout America who are trying to, uh, whether it's uh, uh, to damage the Republicans or Mr. Trump or influence the voters, okay? Clearly unconstitutional purposes to be doing, but when they lie to get this money, okay? That's a federal crime and each person that's responsible should go to prison for 30, up to 30 years. So that's, that's a significant act that needs to be examined. So you think, you think that Governor DeWine's uh, severe lockdown asking for more money for what, for hospitals and, and for care, right? I mean, there's also, to me, the sort of very controversial uh, Medicare uh, payment. If you, if you go in and are diagnosed with COVID, uh, the, the hospital gets a certain amount of money. And then if you die of COVID, the hospital gets a certain amount of money. I mean, there's these monetary incentives attached to uh, inflating the numbers and, and misdiagnosing uh, people or diagnosing people as having died from COVID when you haven't just to get that money. I, I, forget, I forget the amounts of money. I think, was it like 20%. 29? I'm sorry? 20% uh, under the CARES Act, you get an additional 20%. Um, and if I can tell you something on that, that's really important. So what's happened now, when the lockdown started, the hospitals lost so much money. Well, you know, ultimately, if these hospitals and doctors were not complicit in saying that this is a disaster, and not all of them, there's a lot of good doctors, um, but a lot of them aren't allowed to speak out or they lose their jobs, as we've seen so many times. Uh, so what's happened is, you know, these guys, they're not gonna be quiet about the fact that this disease is not that big of a deal unless if they're losing money on it, right? So the states are funneling money to them through more, there's so many ways that the money's being funneled. It's so, so many ways. And you're seeing a lot of empty hospitals or you know hospitals that are just not seeing as many people in there right now. But what's, what's happening is, is they're making more than their share of money because remember, every COVID case or COVID death is 20% extra under the CARES Act. Well, here's the thing, and that's that there's also additional state adjustments on that in a state-by-state -state basis. So here's the thing about this though. To be quali to qualify as a is a, a COVID death or a COVID case, it, it takes nothing. Like I said, the tests don't work. It, the symptoms overlap everything. By the way, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but there was a great breakthrough. COVID-19 cured the influenza in Colorado. This, it, it did it. It, it. We've cured influenza because of COVID-19. So it's not an entirely bad disease. It, you know, the symptoms overlap so much that what's happened is, is in Colorado, uh, according to their Department of Health, uh, they didn't say this, but we found, we found a graph and were able to, uh, to show it. According to their Department of Health, once people started getting, becoming eligible for 20% extra reimbursement for COVID-19, well, geez, no one got the flu anymore. So every case of flu was basically categorized as a COVID-19 case, which they can do, and they are doing. And I'm going to tell you right now, you want a prediction, something that I, I can't prove, but I think might be interesting to your listeners. Uh, you know, you hear a lot about how bad this flu season is going to be and this and that and other. Well, they're hoping so. And I'll tell you why they're hoping so. Because every one of these flu cases is going to be called a COVID case. And it's going to be used to justify a case count, uh, the case count being high. And it's going to be used to justify an increased death count. And none of these are, deaths are going to be from COVID. They're going to be from the flu. But, you know, unless you test for the flu, the symptoms are identical in many cases, so you, no one's going to know the difference. And since you can diagnose COVID without actually having a test that works or without even testing at all, well, yeah, we're going to see an awful lot of COVID deaths and probably really not a very bad flu season. And maybe we'll clear, uh, cure the flu internationally now because of that.
You know, it's interesting because again, you know, my reptilian sense is all revved up about this. And uh, I've noticed now that there are reports that are starting to come out that say, oh, COVID has mutated and mm. it's now stronger and uh, the masks aren't gonna work. Uh, and we, we can also backtrack into talking about the mask wearing stuff too but the masks aren't gonna work. So now this is, you know, now we're really facing it. So have oh, you no. heard about that? And it's- Oh yeah, we're, we're in serious trouble because the virus that they haven't been able to isolate or, you know, actually use, get enough of it to use to create tests is gonna mutate to something else. Well, I don't know. How do you even know if you haven't isolated it? Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm not a doctor. Yeah, I just have my doctors that are, that are telling me what to say and what to think. And, you know, they explain it and I dig into it. And, uh, you know, if it makes sense, we go with it. And, you know, I look at the two sides. You don't have to be a doctor to sit, to understand when one side is explaining their case and the other side is not. Right. The side that's explaining their case makes sense. Well, yeah. Uh, and that's what we've got here. So, you know, this whole, this whole mutation thing, this whole... I mean, they don't know what, that's just garbage. This whole thing is garbage. Well, I just feel like it's a, it's a way of, uh, you know, it's what I call when you're running a, a cover-up or an operation, um, I call it moving the target. That's exactly okay? what it is. You know, um, you can't, okay, so you have to admit that maybe this was no better than a regular influenza. So now, now the new improved COVID, man, yeah. that's really gonna, that's the pandemic, okay? That's yeah. the pandemic. Yeah, well, and it never ends because, you know, we have all sorts of record of these people saying that we're gonna be living with SARS-CoV-2 for eternity. So okay. apparently uh, we, just, we just stay locked down forever. Um, we're never gonna reopen and we're just gonna be the United States of Venezuela. Yeah. I mean, it's worked well for those people. Uh, so let's just do the same thing because that makes good sense. I, you know, the whole thing is such nonsense. And ultimately, I do think there's one good thing happening. As they continue overplaying their hands, people are starting to ask themselves, you know, if this disease is killing everybody and it's so dangerous, how comes this guy over here who never wears a mask has never had any troubles? And by the way, I don't know if you saw this, but the CDC just released, I think within the last week, I might be wrong about that, uh, an updated planning uh, scenario uh, type system, right? They updated their scenarios for what might happen. And it's interesting because if you look at the numbers within that, you look at what they're saying is the best case scenario, the worst case scenario, and the best estimate, right? And they're looking at these numbers and they're, they're using it for planning purposes. They're not necessarily going to pan out, but they've got, you know, three categories. And theoretically, their scientists have some idea what they're talking about. Well, if you look at the, the infection fatality rates that they're basing this on, and mind you, the infection fatality rates that they're using are probably biased anyways. But if you look at those numbers, I mean, you're looking at people under 70 being at basically zero risk of death. I mean, just, just, I mean, it's so close to nothing. In fact, I actually have, and I'll pull it up so I can be accurate about this. Um, the, uh, the infection fatality rate, the current best estimate for kids between zero and 19% or zero 19 years is 0.003%. So 0.003%, that is, that, that, Three thousandth of a percent. Uh, yeah, that's that's my. Yet we still have masks. We still have our schools shut down. We still have this. There's no chance of dying. And just in case that's not enough for you, the the uh, under the current best estimate, even the twenty to forty nine year olds. Uh, you're still looking at only a 0.02% infection fatality rate. So, I mean, what are we doing? So the teachers are in danger? Okay, well, if they're 70 years old, they might, well, let me tell you, if they're 70 years old or older, uh, then there's a half percent, uh, best estimate up to uh, 5%, okay? I don't think there's a lot, I, 
I don't remember. So, any I mean, you know, it's interesting because if indeed you guys are the tip of the spear for exposing this whole thing as a massive, dangerous, and also kind of deadly, deadly fraud on, you know, Ohio, the United States, maybe even globally. I mean, people really do have to look at what's going on here. What's going on? What is, what is uh, the, the bigger picture? And, you know, I, I saw this, I saw this article. Um, it was uh, in the independent uh, science news. And it's talking about, you know, this global agenda to control, you know, the, talking about the coronavirus and lockdown being basically reducing us to objects of control, you know, to control the population. And, and later on to, to take that controlled population and to control every part of it, you know, what goes in the bloodstream, what, you know, and, and it, it really kind of puts into a bigger context, I feel, because you can't have something that is so consistent all across the country, so consistent around the world and not think what's going on here. How come this is, this feels like a, a big thing when well, you have so much parallel Christina, Christina, I just want to make the analogy, Christina, that mask on everyone's face from a five-year-old child in kindergarten to the elder statesman in the church is like a bit in the mouth of a horse and the globalists are going to try to turn us one way or another. They're going to try to direct our lives. And part of that means they have to degenerate and dissolve our constitutional liberties and freedoms. And if I could talk to the globalists out there, you're done. We're not putting up with it. You're evil. The Lord Jesus Christ is going to come down here and defeat you. And that's, you know, our Judeo-Christian ethic is not going to be surrendered to some beast that tries to put a bit in my mouth. And I'm sure my co-counsel feels the same way. Well, I'll ask your co-counsel what he feels is we're in our last minute. So if you have a last word you'd like to uh, share with the audience, by all means, Tom. Well, I think if you want to look at the, the kind of greater agenda, my first advice is follow the money. My second advice is to take a look. Dr. Peter Bragan's a brilliant, brilliant uh, scientist, and he is a Harvard-trained psychiatrist, medical doctor. He wrote a treatise for us on this. He's one of our expert witnesses. Uh, take a look at that. If you're interested in kind of the bigger picture of what's going on, that is a wonderful document. It's a lengthy document, but it is a true treatise on this. Um, also, if you want to follow what you guys are up to, you go to Ohio's OhioStandsUp.com or .org? Uh, .org. OhioStandsUp.org. Yeah, you can check rems-law.com. There's links to Ohio Stands Up there. Um, we're working, we're going to be working with Make America Free Again as well. And we're working on developing relationships and the capacity to do this all over the country. Because there's, a, I can't tell you, I'm getting calls from everywhere. Please, what can you do to help us become free again? And you know, I'm privileged to work with people like Bob and Peter and all these these wonderful people. Like I said, just a regular guy from Ohio. It's a great thing to live in a country where I have I'm the telling you, you guys aren't so regular anymore. With that, we're gonna have to go, but I want to thank both of you for being on the show and we're gonna we're gonna follow your progress and hopefully we wanna have you back on from time to time to keep us posted on what's going on. God bless you. Thank you. Same to you. Thank you.